I'm Doug Storm, and this is Interchange. Today's show is No One Here But Us Creeps. Our opening song is by Taylor Swift, featuring the Civil Wars, off of Hunger Games, songs from District 12 and beyond. This is Safe and Sound, which claims, even if we're six feet underground, I know that we'll be safe and sound. We'll challenge even that safety for hunted girls in today's program. Our guest by telephone from Vanderbilt University is Kelly Oliver, author of Hunting Girls, Sexual Violence from the Hunger Games to Campus Rape. This is a pre-recorded conversation. Hunting Girls takes Artemis, the Greek goddess of the hunt and wild animals, and virginity, as a kind of tutelary divinity. Katniss Everdeen of The Hunger Games, Bella Swan of Twilight, Triss Pryor of Divergent, and other strong and resourceful characters subvert the fairy tale archetype of the helpless girl waiting to be rescued. Giving as good as they get, these young women access reserves of aggression to liberate themselves. But who truly benefits? And by meeting violence with violence, do these depictions justify male retaliation, making victimization into entertainment? Philosopher Kelly Oliver examines how recent popular culture represents young women as predators and prey, and the implication that violence, especially sexual violence, is an inevitable, perhaps even celebrated, part of a woman's maturity. Kelly Oliver is W. Alton Jones Professor of Philosophy at Vanderbilt University, her many books include Women as Weapons of War, Iraq, Sex, and the Media, Animal Lessons, How They Teach Us to Be Human, Knock Me Up, Knock Me Down, Images of Pregnancy in Hollywood Films, and Earth and World, Philosophy After the Apollo Missions. She's also the author, most recently, of the mystery novels Wolf and Coyote. Hunting Girls uses fairy tale templates like Sleeping Beauty to show how deeply the idea of rape is ingrained as a kind of entitlement for the princely class. It's not rape. It's true love's kiss. Rape has even been linguistically defanged, morphing into non-consensual sex and moments of action that ought not to have onerous consequences for the poor boys who cry victim. Girls should get over it. But even wanting to get over it is complicated now by the seeming immortality of objects on social media and the existence of even gang rape in moving pictures posted and shared among quote-unquote friends further challenges us as forms of public acceptance of these attacks. It's just a media goof and the harmless acts of boys who must, of course, be boys. Now, Kelly Oliver on Hunting Girls, on Interchange, on WFHB. It's a, uh, obviously a, a difficult topic to get people to sort of have a conversation about um, because we often don't talk about the acts uh, 
themselves, campus rape, is you talk about how we have, uh, as a, a general rule, taken some of the teeth out of the terms themselves, moving into non-consensual sex as a descriptor, minimizing their negative aspects, I suppose. So it's it's a good book in the sense that it kind of walks through all those particular issues in a popular context, dealing with the uh, the movies that you do, as well as the, the more well-known incidences of uh, campus rape and rape culture as well. I mean, it makes me think of the recent case that made a lot of the news media of Brock Turner at Stanford. Mm-hmm. The, he was a swimmer, is that right? The swimmer, yeah. right, the swimmer. And I, I mentioned him in the book, but when I wrote the book, he hadn't gone to trial yet. Oh. Um, uh, but recently, people have been made aware of his trial and the fact that he was sentenced only six months and probably will get out in three months or less. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then the very moving letter that was written by the rape survivor that I think had a powerful effect on a lot of people, seeing how, how this really does affect a, a woman's life, but also then the letter written by his father describing the whole thing as just uh, 20 minutes of action, and I think that that's really telling and uh, shows us that a lot of the, our culture still thinks you mentioned that rape has been downgraded, uh, so to speak, into non-consensual sex, that even his father could could describe this as 20 minutes of action, whereas I think what was so powerful about the victim's statement was that it showed that the, the impact of those supposed 20 minutes on the rest of her life. And it was maybe it was just 20 minutes of action for him, but <laughs> the consequences of 20 minutes can be profound, uh, for one thing, and also to think of this as action, it's just uh, a sign that our our culture accepts sexual assault and even rape as part of our everyday experience of women. And that's one of the arguments, I think, that comes across, hopefully, in the book about popular culture, including mega-blockbuster films like Divergent and Maleficent, Disney film, and The Hunger Games, and so on, is that this celebration, even, of, of violence toward women, and particularly sexual violence, is still so much part of our culture that it's even taken for granted. And, and that's one of the major reasons why it's so hard to, to hold the perpetrators accountable or... Or prosecute. Yeah, these are these are uh, important points that the there's history to this. It's another good aspect of your book is to is that in some sense we think how is it that um, that we're that this is what we're still struggling with. Yet this is ingrained in our very thinking. You know, it's the the use of a another. Uh, being is downgraded as well to uh, maybe another creature versus a, a human being even. So you go through uh, the book using uh, fairy tales as a kind of template to sort of walk us through some of these newer versions of those those fairy tales. Yeah, and starting with Sleeping Beauty, which the, there are so many versions of the Sleeping Beauty fairy tale going all the way back to the 14th century in different cultures. You see it coming up in Spain, in Italy, France, 
then taken over, you know, eventually to what we're more familiar with, Disney, mm -hmm. in the United States. But it basically is the story of a girl who is put to sleep originally in the original versions through some kind of drugs or magic potion and then raped, literally raped and made pregnant uh, and then wakes up pregnant and the different versions have uh, different endings of the story, but usually she ends up with the, the prince who's raped her in the di more familiar Disney version. It's the true love's kiss that awakens her. Right. But that's just, uh, again, it's non-consensual. She's, she's unconscious. So this, this image that we're seeing on college campuses, especially with social media, of unconscious girls who are being sexually assaulted and raped, go, it takes us back to, to these age-old fairy tales of, of unconscious girls being, being raped. And that's why, I, actually, what, when I started writing the book, I, I had been working on some of the films, these images of tough girls and hunters. I'd been really fascinated about the fact that so many of these girls were huntresses, that they were, had bows and arrows. Katniss is Everdeen in The Hunger Games, and Hannah in the film, Hannah is a hunter, and they're killing animals, and even... Bella Swan in Twilight ends up killing animals with her bare hands. So I w already had been working on that, and then I started seeing connection uh, when I became fascinated by the Vanderbilt case. I mean, it really hit home. Obviously, I'm here at Vanderbilt, so I was hearing a lot about the Vanderbilt case where a young woman of 23 was raped while she was unconscious by three Vanderbilt football players, and she didn't find out about the rape she because she was unconscious until the police told her and in fact in the beginning she didn't believe it because one of the rapists was her boyfriend at the time and so I really just like wow trying to wrap my mind around what would it be like to find out that you had been sexually assaulted through the police telling you or a lot of these girls now are finding out on social media. I mean, that's what happened in the case of the high school girl in Steubenville, Ohio. She sees herself on social media. These, the perpetrators see this as fun. They're taking pictures. Same thing happened at Vanderbilt. They're taking pictures with their cell phones. That's part of the entertainment for them. And they're sending the pictures off to their friends. And in the end... It was those pictures, along with some surveillance cameras, that uh, enabled at least a conviction. The, the camera serves this double function of both being part of the fun and part of the assault, and then it's something that the victims have to live with, this, this shadow, this evidence of their humiliation and shame and assault being shown over and over again. It just doesn't go away on social media, but on the other hand, it becomes this kind of hard evidence that shows the assault is real when, unfortunately, statistics show most of the time women are not taken seriously when they report their rapes or not a lot of evidence. It's sort of a he said, she said, then most of the time the perpetrator will get off and right. won't even be prosecuted. But in these cases, they're taking pictures and then those pictures can be used against them. I'm Doug Storm. You're listening to Interchange on WFHB. Our show is No Creeps Here But Us, and my guest is Kelly Oliver. 
philosopher and social critic, and author of Hunting Girls. It's a shocking world in a lot of ways. You point out the idea of uh, a, a woman discovering her rape uh, via social media or having to be convinced she was raped. This is uh, a difficult thing to experience. You talk in the book about the kinds of questions that come into that, uh, the idea of identity. Uh, if these actions happen to me while I'm asleep and I don't or unconscious would be better and I'm not aware of them, who who is being acted upon? And then coming to understand that who who were you, who are you after you've been acted upon in that way? Right, and and the vulnerability you mentioned sleep, but really it is. Uh, I mean, what I read is that a lot of these women then have real problems with sleeping because they don't feel safe because when they you know go unconscious like you do when you're asleep. There's the fear that you don't know what's going to happen. I mean, in order to ha to sleep, you have to have a safe place and feel that you're safe and, and not vulnerable to a physical attack. And yet these women were attacked when they were unconscious, and it leads to... It's, it's an interesting phenomenon, I guess we could say, because they have a lot of the same traumatic effects of a rape, and yet there are different effects as well because they were raped while they were unconscious. It's not that they have uh, an immediate memory of that, the fear of the physical violence, but this kind of compounded fear of an unknown violence that could happen to them or happened to them while they were unconscious, could happen to them, feels like could happen to them at any time, that is so, becomes so pervasive uh, because they were unconscious. So there's a kind of strange way that the fact of this unconsciousness, you'd think, you know, on one level you might think, well, that maybe protects them from the fear and the violence of, of the attack because they weren't, they were either semi-conscious or, in the case of some of these drugs, completely unconscious. But on the other hand, it leads to this deep-seated fear that they don't know themselves, that they don't know what's happening to them, that their whole sense of reality might be called into question. Because, especially in the case of some of these women and girls who have to be convinced through pictures, I mean, they see themselves being the victim of, of sexual assault, they see themselves and, and even, in a way, don't recognize themselves. I mean, they right. do, but they don't. And it's really jarring to their sense of reality and their sense of self and certainly to their sense of any kind of safety and, and feeling a really profound sense of vulnerability. Well, you, you point out, too, that there obviously there have been uh, suicides uh, that have happened as a result of this kind of uh, social media and digital uh, shaming event, I guess. Right. Yeah, there have been several cases reported where women and girls who have been sexually assaulted or shown in these compromising positions when they were intoxicated or drugged, unconscious, so on, on social media, that then the shame of that social media compounds the trauma, and uh, the shame has been so great in some cases that these girls and young women have killed themselves 
because they're on the social media sites. I mean, a lot of the what the social media is circulating on Facebook pictures and through Twitter and Snapchat are framing, I guess we could say, framing these images of sexual assault as part of a party, as part of entertainment, that they're funny. And now there have been more and more reports of fraternities. For example, there was one at Penn State. They got in trouble because they actually were encouraging members to see who could come up with the best sort of trophy photo of girls who were undressed. And they had their own private Facebook site for their members only where they would post these pictures. And the girls the girls didn't know this was happening because they would drug the girls or the girls would be so intoxicated. And uh, finally, one of the members reported this to the police. So when the police found these photos, even they were not only appalled, but also shocked by the just the quantity of the photos, mm. also the fact that it was obvious that the girls and young women hadn't consented. Consented, yeah. not mm-hmm. only hadn't consented, but didn't even know. Right. You know that they were totally unconscious, and these boys were just manipulating their bodies. Right. And then you know that they, for fun. Yeah, you point this out. This is like a boys and dolls. You know that women, uh, girls in particular, become dolls or become a being that lacks. Well, blacks being, in a sense, you know, almost corpse girls, I think you point out. And this, this culture is, it seems pretty rampant. You point multiple examples up, so it's not like it's uh, a secret in some sense. But I often wonder if the, you know, the popular culture taking it and using it somewhat undermines it as a real thing. Yeah, it's, it's amazing. To me, it, it's very popular with high fashion. For example, just last year, Victoria Beckham and her lookbook series featured the dead girl look, the mm. chick cheek look where the, in the girls are laying around not wearing a lot of clothes, uh, looking unconscious or looking dead. Yeah, the ideal partner. Yeah. Yeah. Right. yeah. I mean, you know, someone without agency. So right. it's, it does, it, and um, another uh, factor that I point out in the book is just the prevalence of pornography mm-hmm. uh, because it's so easily accessible through the Internet in a way that it didn't used to be when you had to go and buy the magazine wrapped in right. paper in the pharmacy or whatever. Uh, and hide it under your bed. Now there's just pornography everywhere on the Internet. That's no joke. Hit the Google images up for any kind of keyword porn. No barriers to access. It's time for a break. I'm Doug Storm, and you're listening to Interchange on WFHB. Our guest tonight is Kelly Oliver, professor of philosophy at Vanderbilt University and author of Hunting Girls, a kind of cultural critique of the depictions of pubescent girls who give as good as they get in their dystopian fictional worlds. But still, the culture of rape is sure to put them in their place. For this break, we'll hear Perry Farrell's Go All the Way from the Twilight soundtrack. More with Kelly Oliver and Hunting Girls when Interchange returns on WFHB. Sparkle and shine, and it shines. Oh, la, 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 la,
Welcome back. I'm Doug Storm, and this is Interchange. I'm joined via telephone by Vanderbilt University professor Kelly Oliver, who is the author of the recent Hunting Girls, Sexual Violence from the Hunger Games to Campus Rape. Before the break, we talked about the ubiquity of online pornography, off-limits to no one, and how this has been priming the pump for visual capture of objectified female bodies. In this segment, we'll talk about what seems a kind of blowback at elite college campuses against informed consent requirements for sex partners. This leads us logically to the prominence of creep shots or non-consensual photography and bystander rape videos. Uh, when I was in college, this was many years ago, but there, you know, there were take back the night rallies, um, you know, things like this. And now this seems like a kind of blowback to that where, you know, I think you point out it was maybe at Yale University where they had, and I may be getting this wrong, so correct me because I don't want Yale to sue me, but uh, it was uh, uh, yeah, uh, no means yes and yes means anal. Was that one of the, the phrases? Exactly, yeah. One of the fraternities was marching, basically, on campus around the sorority. Their own take back the night. Shouting. Yeah. Yeah, 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 exactly, shouting. Exactly that. Yes, no means yes, yes means anal. And then it's not just Yale. It's not an right. is isolated event. I mean, just the list goes on and yeah. on. Yeah. Uh, there's a very aggressive celebration, mm. I would say, of the lack of consent right. on many college campuses with the banners that you'll see. There, there's been reports of banners in, in Halifax, Canada, and Texas, and the Yale chant, and just the the list goes on. And yeah, it does. Seem, it really does seem a blowback against yes. against consent. It's like a response to the campus creation of of these uh, mutual consent ideas that you know we're going to get a contract signed between two parties that say we're we're going to agree to have a, a sex. But you point out that this is further problematic because sex isn't a single contracted. Uh, event it's it's a relationship it's an interrelationship it's a, it's a dynamic event that uh, it can be yes and then it can turn to no very quickly it can turn you know, we have to respect and recognize how how these things change in their context and the idea of agreeing to consent uh, verbally and even on paper or in an app as you point out doesn't uh, take into account the entirety of the way we experience our lives. Right, that's certainly true, and also it turns sex, which I think of as more like a form of communication, mm -hmm. into something that's contract, right. service, right. perhaps that's contract. <laughs> right. <laughs> right, we've got the, it's the neoliberal ideology getting into our uh, sex, sex apps. Right, that's exactly right, where everything becomes a contract, right. but in that particular contract, again, the woman is made into the object mm -hmm. who all she has to give is her consent or lack of consent. So that's the, the extent of her agency in 
in a way. Right. Well, let's let's move uh, um, a little bit towards the social media aspect again uh, in terms of uh, non-consensual sex and non-consent. Uh, there's uh, the creep shot, which you, you talk about throughout the book as well. The idea that a creep shot is a is intentionally uh, a secret, a, a sneaky photo of someone's uh, underwear or, you know, up a skirt or down a blouse or in some secret hidden way, your goal is to is to take from a person this privacy and in a sense own that person via the the creep shot right it becomes a kind of trophy where you sneak up on the animal and get its picture without its knowledge or consent in this case and some of the websites the creep shot websites explicitly say that they have to be candid photographs without the consent of the subject, because if they're posed in any way or the subject is aware, then it ruins the creep shot value. I mean, even the fact that they're called creep. I know, I know. What's fascinating is that it, it goes also into that space of, you know, which, again, you all these things are, are terrible, and they sort of go together, and they're hard to pick apart, but you talk about pornutopia and the sort of re- ready availability of, of pornography, but the the picture that women uh, often take of themselves in these uh, sort of pornified portraits of themselves, that is uh, is sort of out of bounds in a creep shop because even that's too much agency for a woman. Right. Right, that would not be a creep shot. That would be the posed picture, but it does show us the effects of the of pornography mm-hmm. and the pornutopic, which is Nancy Bauer's phrase, the pornutopic uh, culture that we live in, where, well, in a way, some of these cases sound like that's what's going on with the the party rape, the spectator rape. I mean. Some of these cases, another thing that's really astounding to me is there's lots of people around. Right, In right. the Cubanville case, there were people around for hours. What do they do? They pull out, pull out their phones. They don't help the girl. Mm-hmm. There, there's uh, several cases on these beaches in Florida. They're public beaches during the day. These women are being assaulted, and people just pull out their phones. Mm. And you know, there were a couple of cases where the police actually found out about the, the rapes, again, through a social media circulation. And mm. again, the woman found out that she'd been raped. But it was during the day on a very crowded beach, and do mm. people help this woman know their, their impulse? Now our impulse when we see something, see something tragic, is to, to pull out our phones and start taking pictures. And, and on the one hand, that has led to at least the possibility of, of prosecution in some cases or right. identifying the perpetrator. Right. You have said uh, in this book as well that that's part of the, the double edge here is that the, the photo itself becomes the thing you trust, the thing you believe. And in the fact that you even say that means you're, you're already agreeing to denigrate someone's actual accusations. You know, you start out with, well, uh, uh, there's a pretty little liar who says that someone raped her. And now you, you're going to believe her because there's a picture. Yes. That seems to be the case. I mean, that's what the statistics indicate, that a lot of women are not believed. And I found that striking in the Vanderbilt case when the, the police said, we have these pictures and pictures don't lie. Right. And right. we say that's an, an idiom, pictures don't lie. But it also suggests, well, maybe women do lie, but right. pictures pictures don't lie. I, 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 I. 
I'm Doug Storm. You're listening to Interchange on WFHB. Our show is No Creeps Here But Us. And my guest is Kelly Oliver, philosopher and social critic and author of Hunting Girls. Let's briefly just touch on the the genesis of Facebook and Snapchat and things like Tinder being, in a sense, primarily, at least from the start, denigration engines. Yes, yeah, that is also fascinating because it doesn't seem like just a coincidence that Facebook began as a way of Mark Zuckerberg posting and his, his friends pictures of women in particular, and rating them, you know, what, one to ten. And it came out that the founder of Snapchat was involved in fraternities and, and sending text messages that were very denigrating to women and involved in this kind of fraternity rape culture where you lure in the rape bait, as they say, and drug these women. So he was involved at least in these conversations over uh, texting and so on, very insulting and denigrating texts. Also, Tinder, the founders of Tinder were embroiled in accusations of sexual harassment with the people that they were working with to found Tinder. And, of course, Tinder is this hookup site that celebrates casual sex, which, you know, there's nothing wrong with casual sex, but it does seem to, again, play into a whole culture that treats women and now sex with women as just a, a form of entertainment where the women are the objects of this. I, I think, you know, that's too simplistic. Well, it's often hard to separate the things that you would want to call positive from the negative. You know, the uh, the negative seems to me to always sort of expand and balloon out uh, in the ways that the positive can't keep up with. Um, well, actually, I wanted to um, b- point up an interesting thing, just again from the college perspective, that, that sh- struck me was, it's interesting, most of these places that you quote in the book, and I'm sure there are many, many others, but they're all uh, kind of Ivy League type schools that are in your book. Yeah, that's what also I think is, is interesting. You know, we, it's, it's these Yale guys, it's, it's right. highly educated, what we would consider the cream of the crop, uh, but also, obviously, children of privilege that are holding these extremely sexist ideas. And there actually have been some studies that I do cite in the book that colleges are breeding grounds for the rape myth, that women are asking for it or that women even want it, and that the acceptance of that perverted view is higher on college campuses than off college campuses. So there really is something messed up mm-hmm. about, yeah. about that. And and also that it's higher amongst college athletes and fraternities. So these groups of men, again, yeah. maybe the the kind of herd mentality or the, right. the pack maybe right. might be a better metaphor. Yeah, these are, in a sense, they're the protected elite of these colleges. Yes, and that has been part of the problem, too, when it comes to identifying and prosecuting or taking any kind of punitive action against the perpetrators. 
there's often, especially in the case of athletes, a rallying around the athlete. They're very important to... Right. Well, you know, on the bottom line, they're very important to the fundraising of the university. Right. They're an economic benefit. Yes, and they're also maybe local heroes. And mm-hmm. that happened also in Steubenville in Ohio. The, the boys involved there were on the football team. And so there was attempts to cover up. There was people were making excuses for them. Even in the case of Brock Turner, the swimmer, the judge said, well, he didn't want to give him a harsh sentence because it would really ruin his life. I mean, here's this guy, this white, privileged guy who has so much potential, and that's a lot of times the rhetoric around these cases. Oh, we don't want to, the same, same in the Ohio case, we don't want to destroy these young, promising athletes' lives by slapping them with a rape charge and putting them in prison. So it's all about their potential and their careers It's pretty shocking that they're being protected from the effects of rape themselves, as if they were the victim of rape and had to be protected from those effects, that they get the protection. Yeah, exactly. And that's also part of, I think, what's going on, is that they're claiming the victim's death. Right, right. And you see that uh, at the case, the case in Colombia of so-called Mattress Girl. Right. the guy that she had accused of raping her started claiming victim status. But you see that all over. That you know, I am. You know, they they claim I'm the victim now of this this. Right, dragging my name through the mud. Yes. Yeah. And and ruining my career. Right. And yeah, and that's another thing about that. There are lots of statistics about how high rape is on college campuses. Anywhere from one in five to one in two women are sexually assaulted. I mean, you think about that. That it could be up to 50% right. of the girls in these classrooms. I mean, I think I look out, but then you've also got to think, you know, what about the guys sitting next to them? How many of them are the perpetrators? Right. And it's it's not the scary guy jumping out of the bushes that you imagine, oh, a rapist is some scary guy who jumps out at night out of the bushes. No, this is someone sitting next to them in their English class or their calculus class who may even be their friend or... Uh, the, right. the whole idea of date rape, but or the Vanderbilt case. Right. She's actually going out with him, and he. It seems like she was drugged. And, I mean, it's unclear, but there was one strange cocktail, and after that, she was unconscious. Mm. And then, you know, they drag her back to his dorm right. room, and he brings in his buddies, right. and starts taking pictures and sending them to his friends out in California. Right. Well, you know, it's, uh, you call throughout this sort of instant access to visual objects, right? Uh, you're on your phone, you're, you're on your computer, there's, there's instant a- access to these sexualized body parts. And then when, when there's one that's, that's reality, the reality isn't, isn't uh, distinguished anymore. The, the object is just as it was in front of you on your, on your phone. And in some sense, I think that this is the point you make with Tinder, is that it, it, it's just the same reality. Here's the body part on the phone, and there's the body part at the bar that I go meet. Yeah, and, and pornography and just the, what's available on the Internet teaches us from a very young age how we behave. Right. It teaches us what sexual relations are, teaches us what relations with women are in particular because there's so so much of social media is about the objectification of women, right. including pornography, but not just pornography. I mean, Hollywood films. 
It's time for a break. I'm Doug Storm, and you're listening to Interchange on WFHB. Our guest tonight is Kelly Oliver, professor of philosophy at Vanderbilt University and author of Hunting Girls, a kind of cultural critique of the depictions of pubescent girls who give as good as they get in their dystopian fictional worlds, but the culture of rape still is sure to put them in their place. We'll go to the break with Nico Case's Nothing to Remember off of The Hunger Games' Songs from District 12 and Beyond. More with Kelly Oliver and Hunting Girls when Interchange returns on WFHB. All I've got for you You borrow nothing That's what you expect of me So you send me your love Tired of being sailors' knots And I fear underneath The weight of your thoughts My footsteps now They've lackled loudly All I Welcome back. I'm Doug Storm, and this is Interchange. I'm joined via telephone in a pre-recorded conversation by Vanderbilt University professor Kelly Oliver, who is the author of the recent Hunting Girls, Sexual Violence from the Hunger Games to Campus Rape. In our previous segment, we discussed the creepshot world of Facebook, Snapchat, and Tinder. For this final segment, we'll take a closer look at the princess victim that is the template for the films The Hunger Games, Divergent, and Twilight. We'll also take a look at the ways the female, once aligned with nature, friend of the animal, is now instead a hunter and killer in an unnatural techno nightmare. Don't make me go home. Give me something to remember. Give me something to remember. Give me something to remember. Part of the, uh, I think, aim of the book is to try to understand what seems like a kind of uh, attempt to position these girls, these hunting girls, you call, to try to position girls. uh, And again, this is in a state of uh, pubescence, uh, 16-year-olds, 15-year-olds, that to try to position the hero, a heroine, uh, as as an aggressive uh, individualist of, uh, that can make use of the skills that are violent and athletic and, uh, you know, for want of a better term, w- uh, military war type skills in some sense, but hunting skills where we, we try to, I guess, valorize the individual skills of these particular girls who won't extend their hindquarters to the man in, in a sense. Yeah, that was what fascinated me about the films in the beginning was you've got these strong girl characters who are killing animals in a lot of the films. So I'm like, hmm. Right, right. Traditionally in Disney, animals are their friends and they're, right. they're singing with the animals. So now they're killing the animals uh, and uh, they're engaged in hunting, which is associated with the pretty masculine kind of sport, mm-hmm. I call it that. 
but also, as you look closer at this, these films, you see that these girls, even though they're giving as good as they get, they're really getting it. They're, they're getting the hell beat out of them, basically. Mm-hmm. I mean, they are get, getting beaten up constantly. Think of Katniss Everdeen in The Hunger Games, one of the most popular franchises, movie franchises of all times. She is constantly being beaten, and even the movie promo posters will show her. There was one that I thought was really, uh, <laughs> really great, and just kind of told the story of Katniss, where half of her face is a princess with makeup and a little tiara, and the other half is abused, where she's got a black eye and her hair is all messed up. So we get this princess victim. Uh, who also fights back. I mean, she kills people, she beats up people, right? Uh, but she she is also traumatized. I mean, right. something I think is interesting about The Hunger Games, actually, is that, and I like The Hunger Games, and I especially like the books, um, but in the films especially, and not just The, the Hunger Games, but Divergent, uh, Twilight, these very popular girl films, these girls are being beaten up. One of the scenes that actually surprised me was in the film Kick-Ass, where Hit Girl, who in the character in the film, it, Mindy, is supposedly 12 years old, and yeah. she gets kicked out of her basically by this mob, grown-up adult mob boss, and you hear her little girl moans as she's knocked unconscious and bloody. And yeah, she's a tough character, and she goes around swearing, and that's part of what's funny about her, but to see a 12-year-old girl getting beaten up as part of entertainment, I found troubling. That is a, a shock. I've, saw, I've seen that movie. It is a shocking movie in that sense, right? There's a 12-year-old. She's very cute as part of her part of her charm too, right, is the, the idea that this very cute, and again, we have to, we have to see this to me as, as, as a sort of uh, superhero rape bait herself, right, that she's there as, an, as an, a, an appeal to a particular kind of male viewer, and then to have her get really just beaten all to heck by the uh, bad guy, um, you know, as a man standing over her and kicking her and beating her, uh, is is pretty pretty. Uh, it's hard to see something more telling in terms of the social idea of women as sex objects, as children as well. Yeah, yeah, and that's something I think that is relatively new. We've seen women who are beaten. We've seen adult women who are sex objects in films for you know, for decades. Right. That's kind of what Hollywood was built on the the beautiful dame and the femme fatale but now we're also seeing teenagers down to like the 12 year old girl and uh, I think sort of gratuitous suggestions of sexual violence for example in Divergent there was a big debate amongst the fans of the Divergent series when in the first film for the love object of Tris Pryor sexually assaults her in one of the simulations in her fearscape. So obviously, and there was a big debate, uh, well, it wasn't real. Some people defended it saying, and some people even said, oh, that was a really hot scene. This was some of the comments that that they totally wanted to jump on Tris Pryor too. And it's like, whoa. 
and then some defended it as being, well, it was just a simulation. But it's interesting because it's part of her fearscape. What is she afraid of, this character? She's afraid that her boyfriend is going to sexually assault her. Mm -hmm. And you see something similar in The Hunger Games when the character Peta, who has sort of been Katniss's boy, one of her two boyfriends, right. uh, comes back from the Capitol brainwashed and starts choking her. Mm -hmm. And... And there are various scenes in Divergent where Four, under the influence of drugs, is attacking Tris Pryor, too. So these girls are not only being attacked by the bad guys and beaten up, they're being attacked by their boyfriends right. who are brainwashed or under the influence of drugs. Right. You, you relay this at the hands of culture, too. I think a couple of points you make in there in terms of, one, it gives you the sense that uh, the male should get to beat up the female in some sense because she's fighting back. And then there's the idea that the culture made you do it in some sense. Right. Yeah, that these guys aren't really responsible for their violent acts toward their girlfriends or toward women on the one hand. And on the other hand, the fact that these girls are violent, violent themselves, as you just said, becomes a justification for beating them up even more. Mm -hmm. And, you, you know, you see that in lots of these films. And, yeah. uh, you know, some film critics have made the point that this, this asceticization of the violence toward women is portrayed on the same level as any other kind of cinematic beauty. I'm Doug Storm. You're listening to Interchange on WFHB. Our show is No Creeps Here But Us. And my guest is Kelly Oliver, philosopher and social critic and author of Hunting Girls. Well, let's look, uh, let's look real quick, too, at the, the point you made in terms of the animals in, this, in, in these series. At one point, these uh, female characters, as you say, were friends of the animals, and it may be that we can create uh, or at least say that this is because they were more animalistic, I suppose, or viewed that way, the woman as closer to nature. And now, though, the woman, the girl in these, in these movies is like a man in many ways, the killer of nature. Yeah, that's another interesting feature of some of these films is the tension between nature and overcoming nature and highly technological mm. culture. So one of the tensions in the film is between nature. And still these girls in the film are presented as closer to nature, even though they're, they're like animals killing other animals. Mm -hmm. The opening shot of The Hunger Games, you'll see Katniss going through the woods, You'll see Bella in Twilight, also in one of the trailers for one of the last of Howard Four mm -hmm. <laughs> films, uh, stalking a deer, and in the film she attacks a mountain lion with her bare hands, like an animal. Uh, and also Hannah in the film Hannah, which was not a, as much of a big blockbuster, but still has a really brutal kind of girl who's capable of killing just about anybody, but killing in the beginning, stalking a caribou and, and killing it. Uh, and so you see the women in the forest, but then, especially uh, in Hannah, but also in the Hunger Games, this kind of natural state, the girls are ripped out of that natural state, thrown into this high-tech culture like Katniss and the Capitol. The Capitol seems to represent this highly technological culture that's become fake and right separated from nature. And you get there via that train, too, that magical train. That's an, another interesting parallel to our own history of, of, of how we've changed. Yeah, through, through 
industry. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you, I think that the same is the case in Divergent, where the bad guys are the erudite, mm-hmm. are the high-tech brainiacs, <laughs> the academics who own right, right. technology. <laughs> but it's important that, that they be led by the Hillary Clinton-esque character, yes? <laughs> I mean, that's what isn't that what uh, Kate Winslet is, uh, pr- pretty much. Yeah, that is a great point because it is the kind of maternal figure gone bad. Mm-hmm. Well, she's like the bad mother. Yeah, and then we get we do get in these films various kinds of mothers. I mean, the role of the mother is also fascinating too. In like the the Hunger Games, the mother is so traumatized that she, in the beginning of the series, is completely unable to act and. Katniss has to take over the maternal role, the mm-hmm. paternal role to take care of her little sister. And then in, in uh, Divergent, you get the bad mother, but then you also get the good mother uh, and right. this kind of fight between these different maternal characters. And right. there is a struggle, really, between what is maternal and how much these girls have to take on that maternal role in relationship to their siblings, yeah. for example, and protecting them. And in you know, if we step back and think about this, this is these are the puberty sixteen year old girls. Are they being groomed for that maternal role, very traditional role, or are they being trained by their fathers for this fighting mm. not stereotypical, not traditional role? And this was one big disappointment to me about the Hunger Games books is that in the end, Katniss ends up married with two kids. <laughs> right, right. It is, uh, it's different, as you say, from the, the movie Hannah, which ends with the, the huntress being all alone. Yeah. And interestingly, in that script, I read that in the script for Hannah, she actually goes back to the Arctic and her fox friend is waiting there. Oh, so she gets to reunite with nature. Yeah, so she reunites with some, the, the nature that she grew up with. Right familiar with. Hmm. Uh, We've sort of tied these things to nature. The forest is obviously the primeval place of goodness, uh, or I think you say at some point, innocent predation. Right, yeah, there's an innocence. And that's something that I think uh, is attractive about these pubescent girls, is that they're both seductive, but not like the adults. There's a certain, there's an innocence that is also alluring and becomes part of of this kind of cultural magnetism toward the pubescent girl that that the adult woman I mean yes the adult woman can be portrayed as the kind of baby doll and mm-hmm. is as the baby doll it looks like even in this what looks like a crazy movie suicide squad mm. <laughs> like one of the characters is a kind of baby doll like right. character baby doll killer you know so yeah yeah baby doll killer yeah. But with these teenage girls, there is an innocence. They haven't. There, there's the, the sexual discovery and sexual awakening kind of coming of age, but it's a very violent coming of age for these girls. And that, I think, is evidence of, of a reality in yeah. our culture, that, that the coming of age for girls in our culture is all too often violent, and right. a lot of times includes the sexual violence. Well, unfortunately, it, it paints that picture again of individualism, that the, the girl now has to have grit. The girl uh, has to be gritty enough to take it and deal with it and give if she can. 
but take it nonetheless. Yeah, and also these these films, I think, suggest that that the girl has to be able to fight off the boy. And in real life, if the girl can't, then, right, there's something wrong with her. Why didn't she right. go train with the CIA operative who <laughs> right. had, like <laughs> right. Anna did? Or right. why didn't she learn the lessons of self-defense? Well, it's a, it's a, actually, the, you get the sense that if you get beaten, if you're gritty enough to fight, then you can uh, fight off enough men, then the one that beats you is the one that deserves you. <laughs> right. That's right. Who gets the prize? Right, right, right. Yeah. So I was going to ask if you get a sense for where you come through on these films. You know, if, is, there, is there a positive message here? Is there a way we can find our way I- into a better place? Or do you see these uh, sort of techno dramas as placing women just within another version of a hierarchical space and taking away some of what was, well, I guess, traditionally or normally what we might call feminine, taking away what we imagined was their naturalness? Well, I think it's complicated, and I think our conversation has shown some of the complication. (laughs) And where I come down in the book, and in fact, I know that some people feel disappointed that I don't come down harder on one side or the other, but I think that the film's are both progressive in that they give us very strong girl characters and also regressive in the sense that they just buy into a lot of the celebration and valorization of lack of consent, of violence toward women that we have known, you know, for all of our lives, right. I guess. Uh, so the, the short answer is I think that in these films... We see both uh, a move forward that breaks out of traditional stereotypes and yet a kind of reaffirmation of those stereotypes, which is one of the great things, in a way, about Hollywood film, because Hollywood has to operate according to certain kinds of conformity to sell, but it's also these big popular blockbusters are a place where if there is any kind of newness or experimentation, it's going to affect a lot of people. So I guess time will tell. I mean, there was a huge upsurge in girls going out and buying bows and arrows. I know, yeah, I read that. You said that. That's, yeah, that's fascinating also, right? Um, But uh, but, uh, sort of conforming to girl style. Well, pink bows. Right, right. Well, uh, Kelly, I won't keep you any longer. Thanks for spending so much time with me. I really appreciate it. Again, it's a fascinating conversation and a very interesting book. And obviously, these are interesting movies, and things are happening that we need to pay attention to. So, uh, Kelly Oliver, thanks for joining me on Interchange. Thank you, Doug. That's our show. Thanks to Kelly Oliver for joining us to discuss her investigation into movies and media depictions of hunting girls such as those in the movies The Hunger Games, Divergent, and Twilight, who seem to be capable of the same violence that is perpetrated upon them. Yet they are still raped and assaulted, and it's as if their fighting back warrants the assault. They deserved it for real this time. This is a cultural acceptance of the notion of resilience and moving on in the face of sexual abuse and assault. Get tough, girls, grab a weapon, and good luck. We'll close with Daughter's Lament by the Carolina Chocolate Drops, from the Hunger Games, songs from District 12 and beyond. Coming, coming, my father dear, and spend this hour with me, for I have a meal and a very fine meal 
I fixed it up for thee, thee I fixed it up for thee. No, I ain't coming in, no, I ain't coming in to spend this hour with thee. For I have to go down in the mines, I'll return this night to thee, thee I'll return this night to thee. It she got up her arrow and her bow, her arrow and her string, and it she went down to the forest deep, and sweetly she did sing, sing, and sweetly she did sing. Next time on Interchange, Theater of Empire. We'll talk with author and scholar Doug Harvey about the way all types of performance, including traditional theater, circuses, redface, and blackface minstrelsy, were used as a means of conforming public opinion to the aims of American imperial expansion. Forms of entertainment embodied and translated the ideas of imperial and economic expansion from London, at the hub of the British Empire, to the Great Plains of America and played a key role in shaping concepts of nationhood. Theater of Empire, next time on Interchange, Tuesdays at 6 p.m. on WFHB. I'm Doug Storm. Thanks for listening. I produce Interchange. Rob Schoon is assistant producer. Jennifer Brooks is our board engineer. And Joe Crawford is our executive producer. The Jazz Menagerie is coming up next right here on your community radio station, WFHB. It, she went home to her house that night That house so cold and mean And she held her sister close to her side And never more did sing, sing And never more did sing